Wow, great. Loads going on. Great to welcome friends from Texas, Sherry Parnell's family. Great to celebrate birthdays. Mr. Abbott's got a special birthday. Uh, Gav Cook's birthday today. Someone else has inevitably got a birthday. All happening. Uh, we're going to uh, hang with the Easter story this morning. It's so easy for us, isn't it, as post-Easter, post-resurrection people, knowing the uh, end from the beginning, perhaps not to understand the, the depth of emotion or the, the valley that those early disciples uh, walked through. Uh, and that's what I, I want us to, to pick up this morning, something of the journey that those disciples took from Thursday evening right the way through to Easter Sunday and, uh, and beyond. And how does that journey inform How does that journey instruct, how does that journey uh, both comfort and challenge our lives? Because in a sense, what God did over those three days was just so typical of what God does anyway, anytime, any place. It was as if you like God's signature, God's trademark, uh, Morse, as in the inspector, uh, uh, the, in, in the music is a, is a clue, is the, the signature tune. Uh, and, and in a sense, what, what God does through the Easter weekend is his signature tune, his trademark par excellence. Uh, and it's been for those disciples up until those last weeks a fantastic journey. I don't know what would have stuck in their memory uh, as they looked back over the phenomenal three years they had with Jesus. Was it the way he taught and those days when the crowds traveled, uh, gathered around? Was it the, the, the miracles? Was there a, a particular miracle that would always stick in their mind? The leper that was healed, the paralytic that walked, the dead man that was raised, or, or whatever it might have uh, been. But now in our story, now where we pick it up in John chapter 19, all that's over. Uh, and in a sense, it all counts for nothing now as we read what happened. Their hopes and their dreams are kind of gathered up in these moments as we read in verse 38. That not even one of the twelve, they somehow couldn't come to terms with what had happened. And they left it to a secret disciple, Joseph of Arathamea, to ask for the body of Jesus. And so Joseph, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 20, uh, 75 pounds. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys that were fit for a king, an obscene amount of money in order to wrap up Jesus' body. The situation is for John, the writer, without hope. You could argue that John should have known never to be hopeless. 
You could argue that John should have remembered the Old Testament stories of the way God works, the way he brings people out of slavery into a promised land, the way he brought people out of exile into a remnant of people that prepare the way for the Messiah. God was the one who would always take a hopeless situation and do something miraculous with it, but he can't see it. And neither can any of the other disciples. What they had learnt in the light, they were now forgetting in the dark. And isn't that true for you and me? That there are times when circumstances crowd around us, when they weigh so heavy upon us that we forget the truths that we once knew with certainty. If you'd asked those 12 disciples, possibly just a few weeks, a few months ago, whether Jesus could do anything, they would have said yes. If you'd asked them a few months ago whether their God was able to make the impossible happen, they would have said yes. But now in this moment, such is the, uh, the, the weight of the circumstances that they are facing, that they are beginning to forget what they had learnt in the light. And then we see it there in verse 40. It's for John, the greatest symbol of the tragedy that they are facing. He could have written about all kinds of things. For John, he could have seen the stone rolled in front of the tomb and for him be the ultimate symbol of the tragedy, the end, over finished, a big stone guarding the tomb that would never ever be moved uh, or pushed back again. It could have been the lifeless body of Jesus as he watched from a distance them carry it from the cross back down the hill towards the tomb. But no, what caught John's eye, what fixed his attention, what became for John the symbol of the greatest tragedy that he ever could have imagined was here in verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in the grave clothes with the spices that had been brought, and they wrapped it in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. Whilst there were no grave clothes for John, there was still hope. But for John, seeing that lifeless body wrapped up tight in these brave grave clothes, which would have suffocated any weak man in any case, it was the end over finished. Interestingly enough, he might as well have gone home, gone and tried to pick up his old life. He had no belief that there was any hope left. He is honest enough to say in verse 9 of the next chapter that he was not expecting the resurrection. That was not on his agenda at all. He should have gone home, reconnected with friends and family, started uh, his life up all over again, found the magic roundabout character Zebedee and got on with fishing all over again. Three of you are listening. Just slip the magic roundabout in there, see what was going on. Everyone, mm, yes, yes, Zebedee from the magic roundabout. Um, uh, and some of you under 40 something have got no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, neither have I now. Uh, he could have gone, he could have gone back home, but he didn't. He didn't, he, he lingers. He, he, he lingers, not because he, he has huge hope, 
but maybe just because he's lost and bereft, he would not have been the first person to linger at the graveside of someone they'd loved and lost, completely disorientated, with no idea what to do next. So he stays. And by the Sunday, he's still there. And we pick it up in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple, that's John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb First, here we go, verse 5. What is it that he immediately sees? What is it that catches his attention? He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen. And he was captivated. Stopped in his tracks. He did not even dare go in. The Greek word for uh, kind of the, the 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 idea of them lying and folded literally means they were they were lying undisturbed. They were lying as if they had not been touched. Whatever had happened in that tomb was not the work of friend or foe. These grave clothes were laying there as if they had been never touched, but without a body inside. In those grave clothes. This is the nub of this morning. In that which was for John a symbol of utter tragedy, through the work of God, those very same grave clothes became the sign of God's ultimate triumph. A symbol no longer of tragedy, but a symbol of triumph. And that's what God does all of the time. Think about the wine jugs at that wedding in Cana that ran out of wine. Imagine the the row of wine jugs just when the party's about to get into full swing and now they are empty. It creates shame, embarrassment, awkwardness. It reflects that the, somehow the host was not prepared properly. And, and those wine jugs are for that host. Just a, a sign of some shame, some tragedy, some, some disaster. It was uh, in, in those times a, a social disaster at the family wedding for this to happen. And, and yet moments later, once God had intervened, we have these same jars, no longer a symbol of tragedy, but a sign of triumph, overflowing with the best wine that you might ever have imagined. Or take the coin that the widow had. It was one small, simple coin. It represented her poverty. It was all that she had. That small coin was a sign of the tragedy that her life had become. What happened as she went over to the treasury box and put in that very small silver coin and it dropped in and Jesus saw what happened and he says, that's amazing. That is an amazing act of generosity. That is an incredible moment of faith. And suddenly that coin, which spoke of poverty, now speaks 
of something beautiful and precious. What was a sign of failure now becomes a sign of God's hope and God's future. And so the same all the way through. The manger in Bethlehem, what was a crude uh, manger for animals to uh, eat and sleep in becomes a sign and symbol of devotion. And then ultimately the cross. A remarkable thing that the sign of the most gruesome execution that mankind has ever devised should become a sign of great triumph. Tragedy to triumph, that's what God does. Yesterday's tragedies become tomorrow's triumphs. Could God not do that in your life? Because that's his signature. That's his trademark. That's the way he works. That things that are broken, full of shame and failure and tragedy, become things that are healed and restored and a sign of hope and glory. Failure becomes God's future. So what areas of your life Have you written off as a tragedy? What areas of your life have you decided, well, no good can come of that? What areas of your life have you decided, well, that's best left forgotten? It's not that you no longer walk with Jesus, but there is this part, this issue, this something, and you've left it because it's left best left untouched. They say no good could come out of Nazareth, but they were wrong. They said no good could come out of Wales. (laughs) Could it, could it be, could it be that part of your life is just a Saturday away from resurrection? Could that be true? Could it be that a part of your life and mine is just a Saturday away from resurrection? All of us have got tragedies and disappointments and failures in which we see no good. Situations that we see are hopeless. And that's where we've got to get back to where John was that Saturday It was utterly hopeless for him. He did not have a glimmer, a shed of light. We cannot say, but it was all right for them because they knew. They knew diddly squat. The darkness had obliterated from their lives everything they'd learnt in the light. You see, the resurrection is the ultimate reminder that yesterday's tragedies become tomorrow's triumphs. There was nothing good about the cross, or so it would seem. Nothing good about the Son of God coming to earth and us treating him, treating him so abominably as we did. Nothing good about nails and scourging. Nothing good about a lifeless Jesus. Humanly, there was no hope, nothing that we could draw and say, well, that that had meaning and purpose. From our perspective, from those disciples' perspective, there was no meaning. It had no purpose. 
And yet it was the moment of God's greatest triumph. And John saw that in the grave close. A symbol of tragedy became a sign of triumph. What about our lives? What about the things we've written off? What about the areas that we think they're only tragedy? There is no hope. Three things to ponder this morning. Number one, never accept it's hopeless. Never accept it's hopeless. And I absolutely understand how easy it is to think that it's hopeless. I utterly understand how easy it is for us to reinterpret the Easter story. That was then, this is now. That was those people, this is me. That was that time, this is our time. I can see no hope in this. I know, neither could they. Neither could the people uh, in slavery in Egypt longing to be released. Neither could the people in exile. Neither could, neither could. We have a long history of God coming at those moments when it seems everything's lost and everything's hopeless. Remember Joseph in the pit, sold into slavery. He could see no good out of that whatsoever. But God was already working out a plan for his purpose. More than what we see, can we trust God for what we don't? There's nothing easy about this, but it is the truth of the Easter story. You see, if you're crossing the channel, as we often do uh, for holidays, and there is a storm, it can feel all-consuming. It can feel like you're in the midst of a storm and you're longing to get to the other side. But if you were to take an aeroplane ride across the same channel, you would see below you the storm, you would see before the storm, you would see after the storm, you would have a totally different perspective. Easter invites us to have a totally different perspective on what we would regard as tragedy, on what we would regard as hopeless, on areas of our lives that we would regard all is lost. There is no good coming from that. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Are you willing to claw up the bucket of hopelessness this morning and to say in your Head, even if it's not engaging your heart yet, this situation that I think is hopeless, this situation that I have agreed is hopeless, actually, because of Jesus, is not hopeless. Or is your situation more difficult than raising Jesus from the dead? It might be. In which case, you're stuffed. It's just a joke. Never accept it's hopeless. Secondly, stay close to Jesus. See, John lingered. No, no, no real certainty as to why he lingered other than 
Where would he go? What would he do? But imagine if the disciples were halfway back to Galilee and found out three weeks later that he was alive. Imagine if they'd left, given up, gone home. In some senses they had, in another sense they hadn't. You see, when tragedy comes to our lives, when circumstances press in around us, when we feel like there is no hope, there is one person that we're so quick to blame. And that's God. We will instinctively, naturally blame God quickly, certainly, almost, for anything that goes not quite right in our lives. And because we see him as the author of what's gone wrong, we will often choose to run. And the resurrection story is an invitation in the face of tragedy, in the face of things that seem hopeless, not to run, but to stay to stay close to the God who promises to be with you. You see, what if his presence is for you in this situation? What if God cries with you in it? What if he shares your pain? What if he is already planning tomorrow's triumph while you're still mourning today's tragedy? Stick around long enough to see what God will do. Joseph in prison needed to learn what it was to stick around to see what God would do. Paul and Silas in jail to stick around and see what God would do. Peter on the lake to stick around the adulterer uh, accused of adultery and and pulled in front of the, the, the crowds to stick around, see what God will do. So often we want to run. And the invitation of the Easter story is to stay and see what God will do in that place, in that situation, in that circumstance that seems so utterly futile and hopeless. Rhythms are so important, aren't they, to help us stay close to Jesus. And it's rhythms that so quickly go out of the window when things uh, uh, confront our, our lives. The, the rhythm of, of time with Jesus. What, whatever you need to spend time with Jesus. Whatever that rhythm is for you. If you don't know what that rhythm is, then you need to explore. What's the, the rhythm of life that keeps you in touch with Jesus? That keeps you connected with his word that keeps you in that place of hearing his heart and hearing him speak. Stay close. Everything in us usually causes us to run. But the Easter story reminds us to stay close. And then thirdly and lastly, be willing to wait. Be willing to wait. To be fair, these guys didn't have to wait very long. There are other stories where people waited for decades. Abraham and Sarah waiting for the promised child. Joseph waiting for years in in prison. Be willing to wait. So, where does this connect with you this morning? Where is the place 
that you've written off? Where is the the failure, the tragedy, the disappointment, the regret, out of which you have decided in your wisdom that no hope will come? Where is the place where you have given up? And could it be this morning as we read about those grave clothes that it is exactly in the place, exactly what sticks in our minds, in our hearts as a symbol of our our hopelessness, of our failure, that will become actually something incredibly different in God's purpose. And, And what does it mean for you to stay close to Jesus in that place? That situation, that circumstance. And are you willing to wait Are you willing to wait with the certainty that if God raised Jesus from the dead, then all his promises, going back to that previous slide, are yes in Jesus. That all his promises are amen for us to say and to declare. The reality is that for those people involved, the Easter story was incredibly personal. When you think about Mary, and all Jesus needed to say was the one word of her name for everything to change. And as we take what God did on those three days, and we see in the whole of Scripture that it is the way God works, that is what He does. And he will ultimately turn the tragedy of this world into the triumph of a new heaven and a new earth. I thought that was moderately interesting. Thank you. It is. Yes. Jolly good. That sounds sounds jolly good. And we'll look forward to that one day when it happens. So, you see, thank you, Simon. You see, that's, that's what God's doing all of the time. And yet we will say in our hearts to God, but you're not doing it for this situation. You can't do it here. You won't do it here. And yet God says, this is the way I work. This is what I love to do. This is my specialist chosen subject. If I was on mastermind, this is what the topic would be, how I turn tragedies into triumph. We say, Lord, do it in our lives. Do it in my life today. So, where is it? Where's the place that you've given up? What does it mean for you to stay in that place close to Jesus? And how long are you prepared to wait? Let's pray.